Have you finished your personal statement yet? Now's the perfect time to get it professionally reviewed by a medical school HQ expert advisor. We have former directors of admissions, admissions officers, and the like on our small team of amazing people. They have the inside knowledge from reading thousands and thousands and thousands, tens, if not 100,000 personal statements going through the process and setting up the process for their whole committee. They know exactly what medical schools look for and the common red flags that can get your entire application thrown out. Take advantage of our flash sale right now, going through May 6th, up to 6,000 characters reviewed for just $150. That's a $75 discount on our regular price. Go to editmyps.com. Again, that's editmyps.com. The Pre-Made Years, session number 167. Hello and welcome to the Pre-Med Years, where we believe that collaboration, not competition, is key to your pre-med success. I'm your host, Dr. Ryan Gray, and in this podcast, we share with you stories, encouragement, and information that you need to know to help guide you on your path to becoming a physician. As I mentioned in the previous episode, if you're having issues with the medical school interview, or you just want help. You don't, have, you don't have to have issues with it. You just want help with the medical school interview, what to expect, how to answer questions. Go to medschoolinterviewbook.com, and if there's a landing page there, just a landing page there to put your email address, go ahead and do that. I will send you parts of the book so you can help shape the future of the book. I have a ton of questions in there, I have a lot of real-life examples of how students are answering questions and the feedback that I give them. It's going to be an awesome book to help support you as you're going through the medical school interview, which is probably one of the most important parts of the application process. And you'll hear about that in the episode today. I'm talking to Danny. Now, Danny is a non-traditional student. Danny uh, has a physician father, and we're going to talk all about how having a dad as a physician, how that impacted his uh, path into being a non-traditional student, a path away from medicine, and then back to medicine. But I'll let Danny explain all of that. Let's say hello to Danny. Danny, welcome to the pre-med years. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, Ryan. It's uh, great to be a guest after listening to so many podcasts on my own. <laughs> That's awesome. I, I don't know how many students uh, um, dream about being a guest after they listen to the podcast, but it's fun to to start talking to people that have been listening to the podcast for a while. But you, uh, you go ahead. So, what were you gonna say? Uh, it's been for me. It's been an enormously important part about how I learned how to be a good pre med by hearing how other people were successful. Uh, so it feels really great to be at a, at a point where I've been successful in getting into school and can sort of share some of those things with other people who are on that journey. Because in reality, I barely believe that I'm into school. You know, it only happened a couple of months ago, and I still feel like the pre-med I've been for years. So hopefully I'll have something to say that will be useful to other people. <laughs> I'll make sure you do. I'll get it out of you. Your your story is a little bit different than the majority of students that I talk to because you come up from a family where your father is a physician. What what can you remember as a as a child? How early do you remember being exposed to medicine? 
So I was very fortunate that I really can't remember a time where medicine wasn't a really big part of my life because uh, medicine's really interesting when you're a child. And my family has always been in medicine and public health. My mom works in public health. And so as interesting as it is, uh, I don't ever remember being a child and thinking I wanted to grow up to be a doctor. Um, I, I don't really know why that is. And now I look back and think, boy, how much easier it would have been if I'd only figured it out sooner. But medicine's always been a huge part of my life. Why do you think you you didn't have that mindset of, well, my dad's a doctor, my mom's in public health, this is just my path. Where where did you decide that that wasn't right for you? You know, I never decided that that in and of itself wasn't right for me, which is why it was easy to sort of find it later. But there were a whole bunch of other things I was really interested in when I was younger, and I pursued those other things as they were interesting to me. So, for instance... Uh, I spent a lot of my summers, uh, probably from the age of like 10 through 18, in the developing world with my dad. Uh, he did some hospital consulting and we did, we did traveling. So I spent a lot of time in Cambodia and Vietnam and the Middle East. And what I took from those experiences was an interest in working abroad rather than an interest in medicine. And so for the, about, for the five years after college, I went and worked in China. And so to me, I was really following up on the things I'd been exposed to. And it was only after that experience that the exposure to medicine and some other things I was doing with volunteer work uh, helped me find medicine as my own path. As as a child of somebody who's a physician, did you get any pressure from your dad about going to medical school or or any any advice not to go to medical school from him? Uh, actually, really neither of those things. Uh, he's My dad is a really open an interesting guy who always wanted his kids to pursue whatever it is they wanted to. So he never at any point suggested we ought to pursue medicine. Uh, He never suggested that we shouldn't, which you sometimes hear from physicians practicing today. Uh, But he was very much a follow your own path kind of father. That's awesome. So you end up in China. What were you doing in China? So I graduated from college when I was 21 and I moved to Shanghai to basically try to work in the world's most developing economy. And I didn't speak any Chinese when I got there. So I went for you know one job with an architecture firm and then pretty quickly realized I needed to speak Chinese. So I was taking night classes and I found a job working for a big American uh, furniture manufacturing company. Okay. And you're there, you said, for five years. What was your exposure to to what was the exposure that got you reinterested or interested in medicine in healthcare well working in china is a really fascinating thing and i can only recommend that anyone listening to this take a year or two off after school and go abroad and get some experience like that but for me it was also a really exhausting experience it can be very hard to live in a country where you really stand out and you are a representative foreigner. So in the summers when I would come back, uh, I started volunteering at a camp for people with disabilities uh, in Martha's Vineyard. And it was through those volunteer experiences, which were my vacation from working in China, that I was first exposed to other pre-meds and other people in med school and other doctors. And it was really that experience, rather than growing up with a doctor, uh, that allowed me to understand what medicine might be like as a career for myself. Can you remember 
the that experience and and thinking like, well, I, I live in China. I've been doing this for five years. I must be crazy to think that I can go back to medical school, uh, go back and and get my prereqs for medical school, and then and then start this whole new career. So I remember it really clearly because for me it was almost instantaneous. Um, I had just come back from China and I was working in New York and I was doing some similar kind of manufacturing work, but I was really not happy. And I was thinking about it and I was talking with my sister and I said to my sister, you know. What, she said, what would you do if you could do anything on earth? And I said, well, I mean, obviously I like to be a doctor, but that ship has sailed, you know, so I have to do something else. And she said, have you ever heard of a postback? And I said, no, what's a postback? So within five minutes of learning what a postback was, you know, the wheels in my head started turning and turning. I was like, oh, now is the time. Now I actually know how to do it. Why did your sister know what a postback was? Uh, she's two years younger than me, and she'd had a couple of friends who'd done them before. So she was quite familiar. Okay. Very interesting. The the interesting part about that is two or three months after I began my postback, she decided that she wanted to become an NP midwife. And so she went and began a postback of herself. So I was 27 and she was 25 when we both figured it out. But as soon as we sort of put the wheels in motion, it was very clear that we were on the right path. What if you were 37? Do you think you would do the same thing? For me personally, when I figured it out, I felt it felt so clear. Uh, I knew there was nothing else I wanted to do as much. I didn't know if it was possible, but uh, that level of clarity was pretty new to me, and so I knew it was worth pursuing. If I felt had that same feeling at thirty-seven, I absolutely would have done the same thing. That's awesome. Yeah, and I, I think I, I know there are people listening to this that are that are thirty-seven, maybe even forty-seven, and so I, whenever that that moment strikes you, you, you went, you did the research, you got the information, you figured out what you needed to do and, and you jumped at, from that conversation that you had with your sister, where you figured out what a postback was, how long was it until you, you left China, came back to the States and started that postback? So I'd actually been back for about six months. I was working in New York, but from the time I found out what a postback was to the time I started at UCSB. Uh, I'd say it was the course of one summer. So it was the end of spring. So about, about two and a half months. Wow. So very quickly. Uh, yeah, you know, I was 27. I knew I didn't have any time to waste. (laughs) Yeah, but the school semester starts at specific times. So you got lucky that you, you found out about it at the right time. I did. And the other interesting thing that I would share is when I first found out about postbacks, I looked at all of the programs. And if you know, if you want to go to the larger programs, you have to apply well in advance uh, and they're only located where they're located. So instead of going to an official postback program, what I did is I went to UCSB and enrolled in classes through UCSB Extension. So UCSB is a school of about 20,000 undergraduates. And amongst them are maybe two or 300 other people just taking one class at a time, which the school will tell you, you know, you have to be enrolled to take classes, but many schools have a program where you could just take one or two. So that worked for me. Unfortunately, there's no security. You don't know if you're going to get your class the next semester and you're the lowest in priority line. But very few of the students going into that school are really excited about gen chem or organic chemistry. So I had a huge advantage because all of the teachers thought what I was doing was great. How did you 
go about finding that specific program? Because because you can be a a non degree student at at most schools, if not every school. What was it about that specific school that drew you there, and how did you find out about it? Well, I'm actually from Santa Barbara, so it was the most convenient thing for me. And we have a community college, but it felt like advantageous to take the classes at the highest level that was, you know, physically accessible to me. Um, it also allowed me to uh, live at home with my grandmother, who's 88, so I was able to take care of her for the last couple of years. Not that she needs a lot of taking care of, but you know, the companionship is really was really great. And I was able to work as a medical assistant while I was in school. So uh, coming back home to Santa Barbara was a huge advantage for me. That's awesome. And so how, how many courses did you end up taking per semester? So the first year, I only took general chemistry because I was working a lot and volunteering and shadowing. And I had really not taken any science as an undergrad. Uh, I'd been an, an industrial design major, and I'd taken avian biology and a plant bio class. And I really didn't know if I could do well in the sciences. That was, you know, the main question after I decided to do it was, you know, would I be good enough at it? So the first year I took one class, and then after that I took uh, two or three classes a quarter for the remainder of the two years and one quarter I went to UCSB, including both summers. Did you ever, at, at any point, did you did you say, you know what, I I need to do this faster, quicker, I'm not getting any younger, uh, think about leaving your job and, and just trying to take classes full-time to try to speed through things? So the only pressure my family gave me during this process was that I should do it quicker than I was doing it. And I'm really glad I did it at the pace I did. It took me two years and a little bit. Um there really wasn't any way that I could get all of these things done and the MCAT and the application process any faster. Um, it, it felt quite rapid to me, but it's also important that the things I was doing on top of the schoolwork, so working as a medical assistant, uh, volunteering at free clinics in Mexico, volunteering in a lab at UCSB, volunteering in science education at UCSB for fifth graders, all of those things were a really important component of my actual application. And uh, they take, you know, they take the amount of time it takes to get a thousand hours of, you know, this volunteer experience or that volunteer experience. Okay. Why did your, why did your family pressure you to go faster? Uh, I, you know, it was nothing, it was nothing bad. I think they just wanted me to be on the path. The only way I think I could have done it faster is if I decided to not go to an American school. I think I could have applied earlier in the process, but, uh, it, when I looked at all of those options, I just, I followed the path I did and I'm very fortunate to be going here. That's great. What was your, what was the hardest thing about uh, leaving your career, uh, what you were doing, and then coming back into being a student? What was the hardest thing about that transition? So in this area, I think I can really speak to other people who are older and are thinking about uh, the challenges you're going to have as an older student. So I was 27 in a class of all 18-year-olds in Gen Chem and 28 in a class of all 19-year-olds in OCHEM. And at first, I really felt like I stuck out, and I really thought that was going to be a challenge. And I had no expectations of making lots of friends in those classes. I thought I was on a solitary journey. 
And it turns out that when you're in these subjects and you're doing all the hard work, uh, it really didn't matter that I was older. And everyone thought it was really interesting rather than weird. Um, but I had been very apprehensive about being so much older than the other students, including in volunteer stuff where the other volunteers were 18 and 19 and I was, you know, 10 years older than them. Did you get a sense of, on this podcast, we, we talk a lot about collaboration versus competition. Did you get a sense of, of a collaborative environment when you were back in school or, or more of that competition side? So I think UCSB is pretty good at this. Um, the sciences at UCSB are really competitive. You know, they were, I think we started with like 1,700 people in Gen Chem and we finished with 700 people in OCHEM. So that's a lot of drop off. It's about 1,000 people out. But I really found my group and the people I collaborated with by sitting in the front row of these classes. Uh, my best friend from UCSB, we sat next to each other on the first day of Gen Chem in the front row, and we took all of our classes together for the next two years. And that goes the same with all the other people I worked with at the time. There was sort of a community of people who really, really wanted to do well and were willing to work together to do well, as opposed to people who wanted to do well and, and thought that might come at the expense that had to come at the expense of other people doing badly. Okay, that's good. So sit in the front row. That's your your advice. Sit in the front <laughs> row and go to office hours because especially if you're a continuing student, you need your professors to know you. I mean, irregardless, you're going to need recommendations and the way I was able to form relationships was by sitting in the front row and going to the office hours. Um, but you're at a sort of disadvantage by not having as many professors to turn to if you're going to go back and do a post-bac, you only have those classes. So you have to pick and choose pretty early on where you think you might get your letters and try to work towards that. Yeah. Now, a lot of, a lot of formal post-bacs help pr prepare the student for the MCAT. Now, you did a, a do-it-yourself post-bac, kind of picking and choosing the classes that you needed. How did you fit in studying for the MCAT with that? And, and did you think about the formal postbacks and how they might prepare you better for the MCAT when you decided where to go? So 100%, the formal postback would prepare you better for the MCAT. But just like I did a do-it-yourself postback, I, I did four or five weeks of MCAT study 12 hours a day, which is not something I would recommend to anybody. Uh, so in hindsight, I think I've told a lot of people that the two or three month over the summer thing is really great. But I had the disadvantage of not having taken a lot of the classes by the time I had to take the test. And because they were changing from the old MCAT to the new MCAT, I would have had to take even more classes to take the new one. And so I had to cram it in at the end. So I had about two weeks of Christmas break and the first three weeks of January while I was in school. And I just studied my butt off for that whole period of time. And did you take any courses or how, how did you figure out what you needed to study? So I hadn't taken, I'd taken one quarter of OCHEM, two quarters of biology, no biochemistry, and I basically sat down and memorized the exam crackers books and felt really good. I mean, I learned more biology studying exam crackers than I did in the two quarters of biology I'd taken up until that point. But the exam crackers format is great because of all the practice questions. I know it's a little bit different with the new tests, uh, but I couldn't recommend their stuff anymore it's it's interesting i i actually got um their their new mcat books they they sent me a copy to review and i'm going to review one of their courses 
Uh, so it'd be interesting. I, I've never really looked at their stuff before, but so many people like them specifically for the, the verbal reasoning or, or now the car section. It seems like exam crackers is the go-to for them. It is. And I did well on the verbal reasoning and I, they have a book that has, I can't remember, I think it's a dozen tests and I worked through the entire book under time circumstances and did quite well on it. So it really is a matter of being comfortable with the format. It, it always comes down to practice tests. Um, it it, it kind of scared me for a minute because you talked about memorizing everything, but I'm I'm glad you you still did all of those practice tests in a timed setting so you could understand the, the the time constraints as well. That's good. Yeah, I think when I purchased I purchased exam crackers and their books of questions. I I can't remember exactly what that is that gave me like four or 5,000 questions. And I think in that period of time, I got through two thirds of them. So maybe, you know, almost 3,000 questions in five weeks. Wow. It was really, really useful. <laughs> I bet painful too. You know, it's the MCAT is sort of fun in a way. Oh, you're crazy. <laughs> no, you, you, you know what's coming. And once you sort of learn to, you know, people always say this, see through the questions, it, it becomes sort of a game. But the beginning process before you get there is just about time in and product out. <laughs> so it's kind of like the Matrix before Neo could actually see everything. But once he saw everything, it was much more fun for him. Yeah. And for everybody listening who hasn't begun the MCAT or has started and thinks I'm crazy, <laughs> I remember hearing people say this and being, you know, these people are crazy. They're just saying some weird thing in order to make it seem like they knew what was going on. But there is this point where you reach that you just sort of begin to, to see how the test maker writes the test and sort of intuit where they're going with stuff. And then it becomes less hard. You just have to get to that point. Yeah, that's good. So red pill or blue pill? That's the question. How do you get there faster? All right. So you, you, you obviously, you take the MCAT, you do well, you're, you're doing your post-bac classes. Let's talk about uh, how, as a, a non-traditional student, you're trying to figure out the, the schools that you want to apply to, to, to best mesh together your experiences, your grades, your MCAT, everything else. How did you go about narrowing down your list? So for me as a California resident, I knew I was going to apply to most of the UC schools because the dream, the dream from the beginning would be to stay in California. They're great schools. They're close to home. Um, but then I actually had to get help because there's so many schools out there. Uh, it's very hard to make sense of them. So I went to my organic chemistry teacher who also ended up writing me a letter of rec. And she had done a lot of pre-med advising sort of informally. And she helped me pick out uh, about 20 schools that she thought were receptive to out-of-state and places where she'd seen other older applicants get in in the past. So in the end, I applied to 30 schools. And then right after that, I added five more. So it was a total of 35 by the time I was done. D-O-M-D or all M-D? How did that? Uh, I only applied to M-D schools this time, but... I wasn't, I really, it was because I was such a different kind of applicant, I wasn't sure what was going to happen. So I was open to DO schools, but I thought I might apply to them the next time around. Interesting. Explain that a little bit further, because the majority of students seem to be applying both uh, to both these days. Why did you keep the DO schools off the list this time? You know, it was a, it was sort of a tactful, like, well, 
all the MD schools are using the same kind of application. And I felt like I could put more effort into that process uh, one way. And I also felt that my scores were competitive with a lot of the MD schools, but only in a certain way. So I had a, a low undergraduate GPA of 3.23, and I had a high post-bac GPA of 3.87 in pure sciences. So the question was, what do they see? Do they, do they see me as who I was seven years ago, or do they see current progress? And I think I can say that by based on where I was interviewed and where I got in, you know, they really looked favorably on the new grades I was putting forward. Uh, but it was very hard to tell where I fell because I just, I was just in between, you know, strange averages. So you apply to 35 MD schools all through the AMCAS application, a non-traditional applicant. How many interviews did you get? So I applied to these schools at 6 a.m. on the first day it opened. <laughs> I, ca- I cannot recommend applying in the first week enough because my friends who applied a month or two later have had to wait so much longer to get their interviews and acceptances. So it really is an advantage. But also, of course, don't apply before you're ready. So I applied to 35 schools. I think I finished about 27 secondaries. Uh, a couple of them I just decided not to because they were too complicated and they were low profile, low, low on my list of schools. I got my first interview really quickly. In August, I got an invitation to interview in early September at Georgetown. And then right before September, I got an interview, to, at, interview at UC Irvine. And I got two other interviews in September and October. Okay. So a handful of interviews. That's great. What was it like during the interview process as a non-traditional student, as you, as you said earlier, having this kind of split personality of, of Danny seven years ago and Danny post-bac grades did did those sort uh, those sorts of conversations come up and those questions come up about about who you really are? So I was I was fairly nervous for the interviews because I felt like I had a lot riding on this. Everyone does, but you know, being older, I think it felt more. I, I felt like you know I really had to get in this time since I was getting interviews. So as you know, I prepared for my interviews by doing some mock interviews with you. And that was enormously helpful because I was able to get out a lot of my nervous jitters uh, before I got there. And so by the time I got to my Georgetown interview, I was pretty clear about what I wanted to talk about. It just really depended on whether they wanted to grill me or not. And at both of the schools I interviewed at, they were incredibly nice conversations. I really enjoyed them. No one was trying to pin me down about like why my grades were better or worse. They just wanted to talk about why I was interested in medicine and what I thought I might do with medicine. And I thought that was a really generous way to, for them to go about the process. That's great. So, so really no hard questions about, about changing careers and your prior grades and, and what went wrong and any, anything like that. So specifically to speak to people who are older and also to the thing I said before about it'd be great if you got some experience, maybe international after school, all they wanted to talk about were the things that made me different than the other candidates. So many of the things that I thought might be a problem, the fact that I was older, the fact that I had done something 
you know, in manufacturing were the things that they're like, wow, we, you know, this is so interesting that you have done these other things. Tell us more about who you are and as what's brought you to medicine. Yeah. And it ended up being huge advantages. It's, it's funny, as you said, you, you did some mock interviews with me and, and I've done so many more with students and, and that, that whole tell me about yourself question. And, and I forget specifically how, what we worked on, but I know it came down to you need to talk about China and you need to talk about all of these different things because that's the exact response that you want to get from the interviewer is, wow, that's different. Tell me a little bit more about that. Because then they throw out their whole playbook of questions that they had for you and they just want to talk to you about all this cool stuff you've done. Yeah, there was no point in the interviews where I thought they were going badly. They all seemed like we were just sort of having a personal conversation and if you read certain websites online, you can hear some real horror stories. And I only did two interviews in the end before I got in, but my experiences were really great. I kind of wish I'd been able to do more interviews because they were such great, you know, practice for life and practice for, you know, future residency interviews. Yeah. Um, but they all went well. Good. So let's talk about that. So you, you, you got more interview invites than you actually went on. How did you know... When you received your your acceptance after that second interview, how did you know that you you wanted to cancel the other interviews, and and how did you go through that thought process? So I had all of my schools ranked in a priority list. There's you know out of thirty five schools, there were a number of them that were equal, but luckily all the places that I got interviews were ranked pretty clearly. So by the time I had my second interview at UC Irvine. Uh, UC Irvine was the highest school on my list that I was waiting to hear from. So I knew that if I got in there, I would be going there. So I had another interview coming up in Chicago. And in Santa Barbara, uh, you can take a bus to LA. I was driving with my grandmother five minutes from getting on the bus to LA to go fly to Chicago for another interview when I got my acceptance call to UC Irvine. So we pulled over the car and we screamed and I had to call the school and told them I was about to take a red eye and be on the interview the next day. So we had to tell them that I wasn't going to be showing up, which was really fantastic. Um, I felt some guilt about not showing up, but if I wasn't going to go there, it was better not to go. And so with only two interviews, I was really lucky to be accepted in, I think, the, the very end of October. That's awesome. Yeah. Lots of screaming probably some tears. That's, that's awesome. So you, you end up getting into a UC school, which was, I think, your, your goal to begin with. I want to, a little bit different and maybe not really applicable to a lot of students, but there might be some out there. You interviewed uh, at Georgetown, right? It's Georgetown? Correct. That's where your dad went to medical school. So you have that legacy there. Can you talk a little bit about that interview and if if those kind of questions came up? So, because of my preparation in our mock interview thing, I sort of felt like it was important to get ahead of it. So very early in the interview, when they asked me a question, I acknowledged the fact that my father had gone there. And it took out any ability for them to say like, oh, but your dad went here, you know, or in any sort of tone that might imply that there was a legacy connection. You know, I don't know. I actually think that maybe I got an interview really early because of that legacy connection. I don't, I get the impression that I don't think they're wasting a lot of people's time with legacy stuff. 
especially since my dad was never, <laughs> didn't donate any money to the school. <laughs> any about, so they weren't giving us that. Um, but I think it might've gotten me an earlier interview. Uh, however, I mentioned it in the interview. We maybe briefly discussed it and then there, no more was said about it. Perfect. And, and I, I like that, how you kind of, you said how you got ahead of it. And that I know that's something we, we definitely worked on during the interview. So that's great. What was, uh, the best resource for you as you're going through this this whole journey as a non-traditional um what was the best resource for you minus obviously this podcast in total seriousness the podcast was how i helped how i figured it out <laughs> you know that was the thing the problem is is that i didn't find the podcast until uh i don't know maybe 6 months before i started applying but at least there was a lot of, you know, a lot of content to get through. It was incredibly helpful for the application process. I only wish I'd had more, you know, advice from people who'd gone before through a lot of the pre-med stuff. Other than that, um, you know, I did some Googling online and, and the early stuff when you're on those forums, it can be a little bit demoralizing and I had sort of decided not to listen to it. Uh, but you know, I had a lot of friends who were going to trying to go to med school, but they weren't, uh, postbacks like me. So I learned a lot from my friends who were undergrads. Okay. One other big resource for the majority of students that are in school is their pre-health or pre-med advisor. As a non-degree seeking student at UCSB where you were, did you have access to the pre-med advisors there? Uh, So no in any way. Actually, the summer before I started, I called up the pre-med advising office to ask them for some advice and they told me in very, very clear terms that what I wanted to do, which is take the classes at UCSB, not as an enrolled student, would be impossible because those are the most impacted on classes on campus and that I should go away. So <laughs> I, I did not get any advice from them after that. And I did get advice from my organic chemistry professor, but that was only the second year I was there. So the first year, there was really nothing coming from the school. Wow. that's that's I hear too many... Too many sad things like that from pre-health advisors, unfortunately. And I, I don't think they're all like that, but it's it's unfortunate. I, I know they're they're busy people and they they have a lot of uh, students that are kind of pulling at them at all directions because getting into medical school is a dream for all of these students and, and so they're they're relied upon a lot. But to tell a student that is is kind of silly and, and I'm glad you you fought through that. But that's something, if if you're listening to this and you're thinking about going back and doing a, a post-back, looking at this kind of do-it-yourself post-back that Denny did, or a a a formal post-back where you get that, and that's why they're there, to advise you on the whole process. I, I think that's something that you need to take into account of, of what type of supports you need and want. Yeah, I really think a formal postback is a better option than an informal postback, but I can testify that you can get in by doing it yourself. So you have to look at all of the circumstances. You know, it was important that I come and live with my grandmother. Uh, it was a time when she was getting older and she needed someone to be there, and it was really great to be around my family. So for me, it was the best option, but it was difficult in some ways. What do you tell the the 30-year-old out there that's in the middle of their career but has this itch to go back? What do you do? What do you say to them to to either motivate them to to make the switch or to stay where they where they are? 
You know, for me, I had this, I was really fortunate to have made this large life switch. So I was going from working in China to working in the U.S. And I was able to ask myself, you know, what would make me happiest on earth? I think because I was making such a change, it was really, was, I was able to jump from there. If you're in a job and you're trying to decide whether you're going to stay in this job or go to med school and the option is stay with what's comfortable, I think you have to do a really deep search about what will make you happiest over the course of your life. I actually, I think I'm one of the few people for whom going to med school and becoming a doctor was a decision to maybe make, maybe have a less successful financial career. It's impossible to know now, but it wasn't a way for me to make more money. Um, so if you can think about it and it satisfies the thing that you know will make you happiest as a person, 30 is not too old. I mean, look at me. All right. That was Danny again. A great story, non-traditional student trying to figure out his journey and then kind of what he did once he figured out, once he realized that post-bac programs were this real thing, uh, he's going to, he figured out what he needed to do, how to do it, and successfully worked his way to that end goal of now having an acceptance to medical school, his, his kind of one of his top rated schools, obviously turning down other interviews to go to, to UC Irvine. So congrats, Danny, on that acceptance. You worked hard for it. Now, Danny mentioned the mock interview sessions that he did with me. If you're interested in doing mock interviews with me, I do offer that in a one-on-one basis when I have time available. So you can go to medicalschoolhq.net slash mock interviews or mock interview, and uh, you can find out what I offer there. Again, medicalschoolhq.net slash mock interview will bring you to that page. I want to take a second to thank a couple people that left ratings and reviews. L Flores 7 says, excellent resource for nervous pre-med and beyond. Uh, I think every nervous pre-med is there, but that's okay. This is a, an MD-PhD student, so that's awesome. Congrats on getting to that point. L. Flores 7. J.M. Kraftel says, Marathon Fuel. When I first told the doctor that I was thinking of going back to school to change careers and become a doctor, he told me the most important thing to remember is that medicine is a lifelong marathon. And apparently this podcast is the fuel for that marathon. So thank you for that review, J.M. Kraftel. L-L. And we have one more here from Karabindersky that says, I just started listening to your podcast a couple weeks ago. When I run, walk, vacuum, I love the podcast. 28, mom and veteran, about to start my junior year of undergrad. That's awesome. Congrats on that. Congrats on being a mom. Thank you for your service as a veteran. That's awesome. And good luck on your journey. If you would like to leave a rating and review, go to medicalschoolhq.net slash iTunes. iTunes is the best place to leave a rating and review. If you listen in Stitcher or another app that lets you leave ratings and reviews in there, you can do that as well. But it's really iTunes is the major player in the podcast world. Although Google Play, Google Music, whatever they call it, is coming out with a podcast directory and possibly app to... Uh, to support podcasts natively on Android devices, which unfortunately hasn't really been there 
to begin uh, from from the get go. But it will be soon, so that'd be awesome. Again, medicalschoolhq.net slash iTunes. Leave a rating interview. Go tell a friend about it. And come say hi to me. I'm on Twitter at, at medicalschoolhq. That's where I like to have conversations. You can just say hello on there. Quick and easy. All right. I hope you got a ton of great information out of the conversation I had with Danny today. And as always, I hope you join us next week here at the Pre-Med Years and the Medical School Headquarters.